0: I'm Charlie Melcher, founder and director of the Future of Storytelling. Welcome to the 50th episode of the FOSS podcast. It's hard to believe that we've done 50 of these. I hope you've enjoyed listening to them as much as we've enjoyed making them. And if you did, I hope you'll subscribe and turn some of your friends onto them as well. My guest today is Bob Bijan, the corporate vice president of global events, production studios, and marketing community at Microsoft. Bob's been exemplifying the ideals of Faust since before Faust existed. His fascinating and multifarious career has seen him building some of the world's first location-based virtual reality centers way back in the early 90s, producing some of the earliest examples of interactive film, performing in Broadway musicals such as West Side Story and Grease, founding multiple media and technology companies, and even singing as Michelangelo on two Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles albums, which he also composed and wrote the lyrics for. One of those albums went gold and the other platinum. In his current position as a senior executive at Microsoft, Bob brings his endless well of creativity and mastery of storytelling to a company traditionally known for its engineering mindset. Along with overseeing its production studios, Bob runs Microsoft's global events. These massive gatherings, often with attendance numbers in the tens of thousands, are a crucial means by which Microsoft builds connections with its customers and business partners or at least they were, until the COVID-19 pandemic stopped all of that on a dime. Over the past year and a half, Bob has led Microsoft through a fundamental and unprecedented shift in how it connects with its audience without a playbook. So join me now for a conversation about how one of the world's largest companies had to pivot and how that's turned out for them. Bob Bijan, I am so delighted to have you on the Future of Storytelling podcast. Welcome. It's great to be here, man. It's been years in the making. <laughs> so, Bob, to get us started, can you tell us a little bit about the Expanse of responsibilities that you have at Microsoft?
1: Well, I mean, I have a very great job. Um, My my responsibility is really kind of all the global events and experiences we kind of create in the world. So, you know, product announcements, sales meetings to, you know, kind of big shows like Ignite or Envision. So, all of that, as well as basically a full blown television and movie production studio that we maintain on the campus at in Redmond which is pretty extraordinary we made uh, four sound stages, several recording studios it's pretty cool and then and then the marketing community um, uh, you know the kind of the ERGs or the uh, the employee kind of uh, resource groups that live inside a company as large as ours as well as all the training and kind of readiness uh, and and professional growth for all of
0: our professional marketers across the planet. Wow. No wonder you're a busy man. (laughs) Now, just so that our listeners can understand, when when you talk about those kinds of events, those live events that Microsoft puts on, how many people used to participate, show up for those annually? It's a great question because, you know, we
1: were thrilled. In 2019, basically the last year of the before time, you know, if you think about it that way. So 2019, we did 117,000 people coming to our events uh, around the world. Things like 25,000 people showing up in Orlando, Florida, to participate with us in Microsoft Ignite. Um, You know, 7,000 developers coming to Seattle to be at Microsoft Build, that kind of thing. But during the pandemic, we just closed our fiscal year, you know, in in June. Um, And during the year, our fiscal year 2021, we did 1.3 million kind of attendees, registered attendees, uh, to our events wow. and about 35 million viewers to several of our events, you know, in terms of like watching the keynote speeches, but not really participating in the show itself, but 1.3 million kind of registered attendees,
0: which is pretty wild when you think about it. That is incredible. I mean, I, you don't necessarily think about exponential growth like that during a pandemic. We didn't expect it either. And 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 of course, you know, you kind of go like now looking
1: back at it, you think, oh, God, of course, that's so obvious. But this notion of inclusion about getting people from all over the world and everybody being able to come and not being bounded by, you know, I can't take that much time off of work or I can't afford to come or something like that. But the other thing that's interesting about it is, is like you're tapping into an audience that was never interested in events in the first place, right? And that's something that's been very interesting to come to terms with. Like there are a whole lot mm-hmm. of people that just don't like to get on planes and go places and come to crowds and, you know, be on crowded show floors, you know, and not everybody's extroverted and that kind of thing. And, and so the notion of inclusion and scale... Both, I think, really took us by surprise. And now you recognize that in the digital world, not only is there a way to kind of connect with people in a pretty human way, but the scale of that connection and the inclusion in that connection is, you know, just unmatched
0: in, in the real world. Take us back to when the pandemic started and you're running these events uh, all over the country, all over the world. You've got over 100,000 people showing up. You, you're just like on a treadmill racing to, to keep up with the schedule and provide an amazing experience for everyone who shows up. And then, and then it just shuts down. Well, I
1: think here's the thing that was really, you know, pivotal for us. You could see it coming on the horizon, right? My last trip was, I think, the fifth, the last plane ride I took then was like the 15th of February, maybe. Um, but you could see things were coming. It was looming. That time, I had had my one-on-one with my boss. and I said, look, I, I just think we should like throw it all in, like c- cancel everything and just commit to doing digital for the next year and a half. Let's just say it and just do it. And then take all this debate about, should we try and do hybrid? Will it stay? What's going to happen? And everybody bought in. And that was the biggest gift that anybody could give you, right? From a creative perspective, Mm -hmm. all the way through production and business too, because it allowed us to say, okay, stop this bifurcated thinking. Let's just focus on how effective we can be in the digital world because this is where we are for a while. The first thing I think we did, we had a leadership team meeting on ARSA, in my team, and and, and we kind of went, look, we've got to stop thinking about how do you replicate what we did in the live world in the digital world? Because, you know, as a storyteller at my heart, I kind of like going like, the last thing you want to do is remind people of the thing that they love that they don't get to have. And so I think that was this big epiphany that we had that said, look, let's program and Tell stories and create in the medium we're in, not the medium that we're not in anymore. And, right. and and the and the debate we came up with was like, hey, the medium we're in is interactive television now, finally, right? Because mm. um, there's enough bandwidth, the audience is equipped and ha- relatively well trained, you know, in social media and that kind of thing, and we're all stuck. So you and so it's like there, there isn't anything better. And and that created the conditions, I think, for real innovation and some pretty exciting and great, you know, creative work by an amazing team, of course. But, um, you know, it
0: was really, really an exciting time. Cool. Well, so, first of all, Future Storytelling is a live event, right? We had to shut down. We're at the other end of live events. We were 600 people, you know, a very small one. Um, but we know so many people in this space. We so celebrate and champion the live event space. And so many of our colleagues and friends had to just close their businesses or sh- you know, shut them down and were not able to make that kind of pivot to the digital. In fact, I, I really think that you guys are the m- maybe the most successful example I've seen anywhere in the world of an organization that went from having so much invested in, in having these live events and then was able to go fully digital and make it Hugely successful. Like, this is like so, I remember you saying to me, like, it's even a question if you're ever going to go back. And and obviously, you know, you, you will in some ways. But um, so so, let's take a minute and just understand what were some of the innovations, what were some of the the, the discoveries that you had when you made that pivot to fully digital events that might be useful for, for our, our listeners to learn. The thing is, is what I'm about to say is going to seem incredibly
1: mundane and obvious at some level. But like all great creative work, the most simple things are the hardest. And so I I, I preface it all by saying that. And I, And the first one is a reiteration of what I just said, which is this idea of working in the medium you're in you know, it's always true. Uh, You know, all my mentors told it to me throughout my entire career, but you know, it, 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 you have to keep saying it to yourself because it's so easy to slip back into kind of doing what you've done or kind of, you know, hoping or longing for the things that you can't have. And so that's number one. And just that reiteration of that. The next thing is, is this notion of, especially if you're a live event producer, you know, the notion of corporate communications from executives speaking in boardrooms all the way up to standing in arenas in front of twenty-five or 30,000 people, it's theatrical in its core, right? It's all about theatrical presentation, eye contact, projection, you know, making kind of reading the room and feeling the vibe of the audience and getting that feedback back and allowing that feedback loop to kind of create your performance. But the thing is, in the digital world, it's cinematic right and so this I, this notion of needing to switch from being a broadway performer to a hollywood performer you can't overstate it, how dramatic that is because it has at every level from like the person that's presenting or or dealing with the communication in terms of really understanding how to temper their performance and play to the lens of the camera and get over this feeling of you're not getting any feedback back you know which is really a, that's a psychological thing for people who feed off that audience to get them up to performance level all the way through the way you construct the frame, right? And the distance and time and the kind of length that you can take with things, right? It's c- completely compressed in the in the cinematic form of interactive television, of sitting of being a monitor sitting on someone's desktop or a TV that's being controlled from the couch. You know, so like this this idea of having to completely reframe the the context, the distance, the time, the tempo pacing, and performance. Of everything, it's big, man and 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 conversely, what was interesting is is, of course, we're diving into the studios side of the business, which was interesting because in the before time, the events business that it was in the group that I manage and the studios business really were very separate groups of people. Mm-hmm. and they and they really felt like they were different cultures, they had no, very little in common. And so throwing these people together and then creating a new process that you know really takes pieces of both of those worlds, and combines them into kind of this new interactive process and combines it with a heavy dose of technology and technological management at scale, Um, you know, it's a completely different world. Again, even though some things look familiar. And so getting people to drop that all, all the pretense of what their craft is, and then rebuild a kind of a new kind of collaboration was very, very hard. And I think it takes real work, but it's worth it. And, And you really have to accept that that's true.
0: Are there certain advantages that, that you had because you're Microsoft? And were there s- similarly certain challenges that you had to make that evolution because you're Microsoft? Certainly, you know the 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 advantages are huge and many, right?
1: The fact that we had that building, the, you know, the fact that you know we we have the resource to be able to, ha- to have the the wherewithal to say we're going to just cancel all of our uh, you know kind of live events for the next year and a half and take the consequences of that, you know, when you think about contracts and real estate and spaces and that right. kind of thing. Right. So obviously, that's just not many companies get to do something like that, which is extraordinary. But um, but I think the disadvantages are, hey, it's a you know. It's it's a, it's a nation state in terms of its size and and you know you have to really build consensus and you know the kind of change management we're talking about I mean you think about the live events business especially in the corporate world right it hasn't really changed in 35 years right, right? The, I mean the technology's gotten better projections better than it was you know you're not using sony 1040q's you know with a line doubler the way you were in 1985 but it's the same premise right i mean it, it, show floors are a show floor right and and so this kind of the change management of it and the resistance human beings have to change management and the anger that gets generated as a result of change management,
0: right? And, and the diplomacy that you have to kind of, kind of output. I have this expression that I always love to use, which is that you should use each medium to do what it does best. How does that resonate for you in, in this change that you've gone through? Utterly. If you're true to that
1: and you really kind of allow yourself to lead with that, there's two components in my mind. One is the medium you choose to express yourself if you're, you know, at the earliest stage of storytelling, when when you're creating the story or the narrative architecture that you're trying to convey, you know, you need to make a conscious choice about the medium you want to expose it in. And I think that's a key component of the creative process. But once you decide that, then yeah, you've got to throw yourself into that medium and you've got to live in it. And, and, and yes, it doesn't mean you can't push the edges of it, but it means that you have to accept at its core what that medium is and what it's capable of doing, right? You know, it's like what we're doing here in this, you know, in this interactive television world that we're trying to create. You know, it's like these simple, simple things about interactivity and just getting people to kind of go, hey, I'm going to do a completely interactive speech a choose your own adventure speech and I'll use key questions to let the audience drive me through the content I want to present. Like, we're still trying to sell that to an executive at Microsoft, right? Which I think would <laughs> be compelling, but it's totally Flintstonian in terms of like where we are in the process, but that's breakthrough stuff now, right? That's, you know, we're trains coming out of tunnels, you know, we're, in, you know, the early 1900s of the cinema business. And, and so I think those simple kind of figuring that out, and there are not a lot of creative teams that I've met that really even understand the concept of branching narrative, well and i'm not saying that in a pejorative way or trying to be critical it's just we're all kind of apprentices at best and, right. and i think that's the other thing that a lot i think a lot of creative teams try and do they try and go they overstep and try and kind of create an overly complicated narrative because they're like oh my god we're in technology we've got to make vr ar let's do it in the megavert you know the metaverse and that kind of thing and it's like mm. Yeah, but maybe let's figure out how to tell interactive stories a little better and use the tools that our audience uses, right? Which is still just
0: chat, messaging, posting. The question of scale comes to my mind hearing you speak. So so one, I'd like to hear about how you think about participation at scale. But on the other side, you, you mentioned this idea of like our expectation of intimacy that comes from live events and that perhaps being lost or Or is there a way in which you're addressing that too? The scale stuff,
1: what's interesting is, in the largest sense, when you think about our keynotes, let's say, if you break it down, keynotes, kind of what what I'd call sessions, and then kind of what we think of as the connection zone, which is really the whole idea of networking and human connection in the digital world, not trying to replicate the hotel bar, but just our version. So the most scale, obviously, is that those keynotes, the two-hour block we do at the beginning of any day that we start and kind of, you know, this is the big stuff that we want everybody to hear and all all of that. We think of, you know, the interaction there is really about kind of chat, um, polling, um, and then and then, just the audience's awareness of itself, right? You can search the database. Are my friends in the auditorium? So, you know, are, are they listening? And can I make contact? And, the, and all that's true. But relatively simple and straightforward, the most kind of broadcast-oriented, even though we bring that, you know, that interactivity and in it's very prominent in the, in the performance of the keynotes and that kind of thing. Then as you move to the next kind of level, it gets more, more interactive in two ways. One is that we connect everything with this idea of, interstitial programming or this kind of ongoing relationship of human hosts that we that we increasingly think of as part of the interface of the kind of the venue, the digital venue and the software that's running to support that venue in, in an event experience in the digital world, the humans are as important as the way you design the software and these interstitial programmings is the way you keep the connection going, even as people are navigating through the venue itself. And so that interstitial programming amps up the interactivity by starting to bring the audience in. So we do a lot of work with like, hey, post a picture of where you're watching the show, you know, show us where you are, that kind of thing. And we're editing in real time and then throwing it into the volume, you know, so that the hosts can interact with it and kind of... To showcase it, which creates this virtual cycle, right? Because you get excited. Oh, my picture's on oh, this thing now. I'm posting it on my social media. So we've done a lot of analysis about the kind of the ripple effects of that, and it's very, very effective.
0: Talk for a little, a little bit more with me about the economics, because I, I don't know that you can give exact numbers, but just. Huge amounts of money spent to put on that event for those events for 100,000 people, right? Yeah. I mean, when you think about the food and beverage and the, and the venue rentals and all of the, you know, all this
1: carpet. And so as we moved through the, the pandemic and made that choice to kind of decommission live and just focus on digital, we cut our budgets by over 50%. Now, that's not to say, uh, yeah, it's staggering, right? And, yeah. and when especially in light of the scale we're, we've been talking about and the efficacy, right? Because the efficacy is just like way beyond you, you know what we've got out of live. But the thing that's crazy about it is you got to think, okay, the production value is going to continue to increase. Talent will come into it. We'll, you know, we'll start spending more money. There's no question about that. <laughs> but, but even still, the, the the value of those invested dollars, because we're constantly making assets that still exist, right? That can be leveraged again and again, and so that's the other benefit. Like as, as we've done a lot of analysis in our own group of like going, okay that that kind of sunk investment that you would have put into Orlando in scenery and all this stuff that you basically leave in the alley when you leave a city versus the media that we're making, the content that we're making, and the way we can either slice, dice, localize it. We're doing live translation for the keynote section so you really get the nuance of the speech. Plus subtitled and live translations for all of our sessions. It's you know it's pretty extraordinary now. You know the ability to kind of make this di- digital asset and make it highly usable in all of our offices around the world. And so that that's the other piece of it, where it's not just you spend it once and then next year you got to spend it again for the same kind of stuff that you
0: leave as trash. Let me ask you to extrapolate from your experience, and I know you have a background in in entertainment. How do these learnings do you think apply to other people's live events um, and to the world of entertainment outside of your corporate experience? No, I mean, look, I I think what's interesting is obviously it's a small community.
1: Everybody does the same stuff. So all the people that work on our shows work on all the rock shows and all the Broadway shows. So, I mean, we're talking about it together all the time. And I think it's it's all interwoven right i mean i we did we did this launch of windows 11 and surface 2 week two weeks ago and it's it's good television right so the notion of corporate communications becoming more and more entertainment like to be digestible by the workforce or their customer set or their partner set and entertainment increasingly driven by underlying corporate interests which it, 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 you know i mean tv looks more and more like a corporate communications vehicle you know every decade be, <laughs> and i'm not saying that to, to be denigrating or anything but it's just like true so the the blend of these things and the applicability of the the, the vocabulary and the kind of the tools and the, you know, the tricks of the trade for this interactive television flavor that we're making finally, um, I think is going to be shared and exploited by entertainment equally, uh, you know, as corporations. And so, you know, it's really easy to see how this could apply to a live music experience and the ability to turn, you know, turn people's phones into a kind of key participant. You know, there's just so many ways to leverage the 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 distributed technology and the collective knowledge of the audience
0: to create interesting experiences. And and what technologies are you seeing that might push this, transform it, be, be really important? What I see
1: now is the ongoing distribution and the ability to deliver seamlessness against all these technologies in a way that really is easy to use. This idea of an audience's sophistication kind of aligning with technological distribution, bandwidth, and the fact that everyone is holding one of these, not everyone, but enough, a critical mass, right, a phone, the creative platform that I think is the platform for the next 10 years of creativity, really. I mean, people want to have this argument about VR and AR, and it's coming, of course. Right, right. But it's just such a much more complicated interactive environment in which to storytell, right? And you really can't translate like linear storytelling into that world and have it be effective. You've really got to become a master at, I think, interactive branching narrative in a very complicated and highly sophisticated way. And I I don't know
0: about you, I just haven't seen it yet. Is there a, a learning from something that didn't work that you can share? Sometimes, you know, you the testing of the extremes is where you get the best insights. I say it all the time, because it's funny, we get to
1: tell our story a lot to um, corporate, a lot of our clients, because they're just interested and like, tell us the story. And I kind of say it, and it's absolutely true. What we are now, is the sum total of every huge mistake we've made over the last eighteen months? <laughs> we ha- we've made terrible mistakes. The thirty-eight minutes of death. So we, we, uh, our, our global sales meeting. We had done like three live, uh, three of these virtual shows. Build had gone off and had been incredibly successful, and all this stuff. And we had done Inspire, our partner meeting, and that had gone pretty well. And Build starts. It's the opening keynote. The show is about to begin, and the thing goes completely black, just like you know, dead, <laughs> dead air. But the lesson of that was we realized all these holes that we had in communication, because historically, like the people that run the backbone of the network at the event to keep the kind of internet access up and running, who suddenly were in the middle of the broadcast center, kind of responsible for the streaming of the the show. We had no communication connectivity between the show production or the control room that was kind of putting together the video elements or the the bandwidth folks. And, you know, it was a disaster, but it was the advent of this thing that we now call mission control, which now all the department heads sit in for every show, total connectivity. Like it's, but we had to to fly that plane into the mountain before we really understood that that
0: change had to happen. That's what forced that change. Well, I appreciate you sharing that because I literally had the thought that you had just had success and iterating on success, but it's glad to hear that there were a few missteps. You're a storyteller at heart. You, you always have been. And here you are challenged with helping to tell a story from a global company or many stories from a global company that's a technology company. It's got a, a very strong engineering tradition and culture. I'm wondering about the challenges as a storyteller to get to the most powerful kind of human emotional empathetic storytelling how is that going for you in terms of moving the ship forward we're getting there we're getting there and and i think it's look there are, if you look across if you take the
1: slt our senior leadership team as the lineup of you know the the the, the most forward facing uh, speakers for the company I, you know, I would say we've got some real winner, like some people really become fantastic communicators in this medium, and there's a mm-hmm. every, but everybody has moved forward a, a pretty considerable amount. And I'll tell you at least in my opinion, what I think is why. It's this combination of you've got to sit and watch it, right? You know it, and there's this this thing about like when you're on stage, you know, and you're in that big room, you can take you can it's so expansive. you can take the time, people give it to you. It's such a different experience. This is the other thing that releases when you start doing television, right? Because then it's like, well, what makes up good television? Oh, short segments, lots of change of scenery, all of this stuff, which feeds into this idea of like, oh, well, then you've got to bring the human component in. And this is what has been really rewarding about going, okay, how do you how do you effectively use that six minutes to tell to move the story forward? And the way you use it, human voices, real places, on location, you know, bringing authenticity into the presentation. And yeah, in many cases, that means minimizing executive presentation and letting real people carry the stories or even, you know, kind of all of a sudden what's on the table in a way that
0: never would have played in, you know, kind of the live world is we're back to kind of this idea of scripted television. So here's the $64,000 question, Uh, actually probably add a couple of zeros. So as a company that has created some of the most important tools for corporate communication, right, For, for telling company stories, do you think any of these insights will end up being worked into new tools? Absolutely. Maybe one of the most interesting things at Microsoft, at least in my
1: latest tenure, the last five years I've been around the company, is this incredible digital transformation that's taking place all over the world, You know, kind of across every industry and all of us. In every case, our digital transformation, whether it's HR or legal systems or the way we manage media or media buying, any of these things, each of them became stories that were of great interest to many of our customers. And because they were, they became kind of the blueprints for either variations, flavors of, or additional features in products we have. Great example, the most recent one is Microsoft Viva, which is this you know employee lifestyle version of office and teams working together with a bunch of tools to kind of help keep employees, you know, happy and well, that is really a direct descendant of all the digital transformation we did in our HR department and the tools that we developed internally now packaged up as a product. And so I do really? think that this it's not unreasonable to think of us as kind of taking the blueprint of what we've done over the last 18 months and continue to do moving forward. And it's already had a significant influence on the on the features that are in Teams, for example. Right, I was thinking that too, yeah.
0: And I think we'll continue to have a pretty significant influence. Well, Bob, I am so excited for the impact that you're going to continue to have at Microsoft and by extension... To the entire world of corporate communications. <laughs> I would have never said this before, but um, I can't wait to see the shows that you create <laughs> and, and subscribe and become a regular watcher and, and just see the kind of positive influence that will have in, in ultimately so many people being better at telling powerful and meaningful stories. And and that's ultimately, that's what I think we at FOSS are all about. And I think that's what you're about, which is better stories for a better future. Absolutely. What an absolute pleasure talking to you, Charlie. This has great. Thank you, Bob. Feelings mutual. My deep thanks to Bob Bijan for joining me on the podcast today. You can learn more about Bob's work and find a full transcript of our conversation by visiting the link in this episode's description. Thank you for listening to the FOSS podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, we'd really appreciate it if you'd take a moment to give us a nice review. FOSS also produces a monthly newsletter that if you're a storyteller of any kind, is really worth reading. It's free. So check it out by visiting our website at fost.org under the content tab, where you'll also find a wealth of other great resources. The FOSS podcast is produced by Melcher Media in collaboration with our talented production partner, Charts and Leisure. We'll be taking the week of November 21st off to celebrate Thanksgiving. So we'll see you again in three weeks for our next deep dive into the world of storytelling. Until then, please be safe, stay strong, and story on.